Our scripture reading today is from Philippians 1, 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and the deacons. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. If you'd like, feel free to grab a Bible from the pews in front of you and follow along, Philippians in the New Testament. Um, if you need to look at the table of contents, that's fine. That's why it's there. Um, starts with a PH, not an F. Well, we're calling this sermon series that we're launching today, Joyful Synergy. I think it's helpful to be reminded of what the word synergy means, after all. Synergy is this, the combined power of a group of things when they are working together that is greater than the total power achieved by each working separately. It's a term that's often used in business and in science and in medicine, but it can also be used of human endeavors, human beings working one with another that we find in the church. Synergy is what happens when people work together well. And it's a major theme in Paul's letter to the Philippians. The church is meant to be a cooperative community. And one of the byproducts of this warm and considerate series of relationships is joy, which is also a major theme of this beloved book. As a symbol of joyful synergy during this series, we are using team rowing. Now, you might have noticed that behind me, uh, on the chancel, kind of framing the cross, is a spray of four rowing oars. These are the real deal. Uh, special shout out and thank you to the Everett Rowing Association, uh, who is letting us borrow these for the duration of our series. The person-to-person -person coordination required to row in time with your fellow rowers should be fairly obvious. You can just imagine, can't you, what it would look like if on a rowing crew everyone did their own thing in their own time, in their own way, regardless of what everyone else was doing. You'd have oars moving, sure thing, this way and that, 
A lot of water being churned up, but absolutely no progress being made. There's a process dimension to rowing as well. It takes time and training to become an efficient rower on a competitive crew. In Philippians, Paul speaks of a similar process of development that God is engaged in through the Holy Spirit within the church and reminds us that even in those moments when we are flailing about with the oars and churning up a lot of water but not getting anywhere, that we shouldn't give up because God hasn't given up on us. We're not there yet. But God is actively working in and among us to help us to be the people and the loving community that we are meant to be. It's important to know from the very outset that the Apostle Paul has a real relationship to the people he's writing to. They know each other and hold each other in positive regard. The Philippians, in fact, have been supporting Paul for years since they first met. He's actually writing this letter to the Philippians while in prison in Rome. This is toward the end of his life. Now, the events of Paul's initial foray into Philippi are recorded for us in Acts chapter 16. I encourage you to read that this week as a way of kind of orienting yourself to this letter. And here in Acts 16, we learn that Paul, along with Silas and Timothy and a few other companions, and one of those likely being Luke, because Luke is the author of Acts, when they get to Philippi, he starts writing saying, we did these things. But they travel by boat from the port of Troas in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, to Neapolis on the Macedonian coast, which is modern-day Greece. In this spirit-led and missionally strategic move, something remarkable happened with Christianity. You know, in the world, a lot of people think of Christianity as a European religion. Can you imagine that? Because you know, right? that up to this point in the story, Christianity had not even been to Europe yet. The church began in Palestine and then moved into modern, the area of modern-day Turkey, which in those days was called Asia Minor. So the church really was a, an Asian, Christianity was an Asian religion, or more specifically, a Middle Eastern religion, until this point in the story when Christianity became first established on the European continent in the city of Philippi. And it all began by way of water. Stepping onto a boat in Troas. After harboring for a night on the Greek island of Samothrace, home to the famous winged victory statue now housed significantly and prominently in the Louvre Museum in Paris. They head toward open water again and pass between the island of Thassos, the northernmost Greek island, and the mainland before arriving at the port city of Neapolis. These images on the screen were taken on that very same stretch of water that 
Paul traveled on years ago. It's still there. It's still wet. And it's still brilliantly blue under a blue sky. Paul and his companions' arrival in Philippi was relationally significant. And that squares with what we're going to get in the letter of Philippians in terms of the relational tone. They met Lydia. Lydia was a prominent merchant. We would call her a businesswoman. And after she opened her heart to the gospel of Jesus Christ, she, in Acts it says this, she persuaded them to be guests in her very own home. So Paul's arrival into Philippi started with warm relational hospitality one to another. And it continued even though they would later meet resistance in Philippi. And in fact, there's a famous episode in Acts 16 of Paul and Silas being thrown into prison. Some of you know that story very well. Well, after his initial salutation, the first uh, kind of the formal way a letter was written, just like we have formal ways of writing a letter or starting a letter uh, today, uh, we would say, dear so-and-so, comma, right? We, we've written letters like that. We've written cards like that. Well, that the first few verses of Philippians and most New Testament letters that, that uh, are, are in the scriptures are written according to the form of letters in the first century. And after that initial salutation, Paul begins the body of the letter with the word that is used today in Greece countless times when people meet one another or say thank you to one another in the, in the stores, uh, in the restaurants, as you're walking down the street, if you were to say thank you, you would say ekaristo. And you say that over and over and over again. And Paul begins his letter to the Philippians by saying, Eucharisto, Eucharisto, I give thanks. Author Anne Voskamp, in her best-selling book, 1,000 Gifts, wrote popularly about the root word connection among the Greek words thanksgiving, joy, and grace. And that trio of words brings warmth to this opening section of Paul's letter. Verses 3 through 6. I thank my God every time I remember you. Skipping along, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. You see, Paul is joyfully grateful for their partnership in the gospel. And the word translated into the English, partnership, is the Greek word koinonia, which we studied last fall when we talked about the five foundational aspects of the Christian church. This is community. This is fellowship. Their partnership contains a promise. In verse 6, partnership in the gospel comes with a promise. The one who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. If you're like me, this isn't the first time you've heard that verse. 
For some of us, at various times in our journey with the Lord, we've needed to hear that. We've needed to read that. Because we knew in that moment we weren't finished. And there was something in our life that was reminding us of that fact. And yet, we heard this with a sense of comfort and encouragement that it wasn't over that we could look forward to the ways that God would work in our lives to get us there, to get us to the goal. It's not limited by our own efforts, as if we could will ourselves to become the people God wanted us to be. We only get there by God's grace, by God's sufficient strength and faithful persistence. The Boys in the Boat is a best-selling book that chronicled the crew from the University of Washington that rose up to become the crew representing the United States, winning the gold medal at the Berlin Olympics in 1936 under the shadow of Adolf Hitler and the Third Reich. In this book, author Daniel James Brown introduces us to a man named George Pocock. That's him up on the screen. later in his life in 1959. He was a master craftsman and builder of wooden racing shells, known worldwide, but for those who live in the Northwest, we claim him as our very own. He's honored at his old haunts at the Husky Boathouse on Montlake, at the Northwest Maritime Center in Port Townsend, where you can see some of his beautifully crafted boats, and by the company that operates not far from this address, making racing shells in his name. Racing shells that are rowed throughout the world today. Daniel James Brown dedicates many pages to describing how Pocock would begin his work of crafting a boat. And the stages that it would go through to bring it to completion. One of his innovations at the time was to make use of wood that was plentiful in our region, but that most considered only good for chopping into roof shakes, and that would be cedar, Western Western red cedar to be specific. But Pocock noticed its unique and hidden qualities patiently shaping strips of cedar into the sleekest and swiftest boats on the water, much the way that indigenous peoples of the Salish Sea have done for centuries. Pocock's patient and careful craftsmanship on the boat is paralleled in the book by the patient and careful coaching that shaped the crew into a cooperative and competitive unit. Sisters and brothers in Christ, God is in the process of crafting us into the people we are meant to be, both individually and corporately as a congregation. His work has begun, and it is good, but it's not done. While the moments when we are reminded that we are works in progress can be a bit discouraging. Paul reminds us here to take heart. God isn't finished with us yet. 
the God who began a good work in us will carry it through to completion. Well, we continue to be held in God's heart as God lovingly crafts us and forms us. And this holding in the heart is something that characterizes a loving Christian community that shares God's grace. Paul speaks to the Philippians affectionately. It begins in this first chapter and does not end until the very end of the letter. Now, has anyone ever written you kind of an intimate letter that you read and you kind of got a little bit, maybe a little bit flushed heat in the face, kind of a little bit embarrassed that someone would say these things about you? Perhaps the Philippians had that kind of response to the Apostle Paul. He's crazy about him. But doesn't our life change radically when we recognize that there is someone or there are those someones who are crazy about us, who care about us deeply no matter what? Paul speaks affectionately, even speaking of his longing for them with the affection or the compassion of Christ himself. Verse 7 and 8, It is right for me to feel this way since I have you in my heart, And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. Holding one another in our hearts is rooted in what we share, and that is God's grace. In fact, one way of describing God's grace in Christ is that through Christ, God continues to hold us in God's heart regardless of our merit or how we're progressing in the Christian faith. Think about a teacher. We talked about the blessing of the backpacks, but what do you do as a teacher when you see a student struggling? Do you just give up on them? Absolutely not. You're a good teacher. Your teaching has only begun. And if you're truly called to that teaching you will enjoy the process at some level. Not every moment. What about with our kids? Do we just give up on our kids the first time they disobey? Absolutely not. That's not loving parenting. The truth is that we all long for the depth of relationship that's being talked about here. Sometimes we experience it, oftentimes in part. Think of the heart-level connections that you've had with other people. Think of family members. Think of friends. Think of teammates, partners, workmates. Each of these connections has to begin somewhere. There's a beginning. And then there's a process of becoming more deeply connected to one another. That was true in first century Philippi, as it's true today. Some of our most dedicated partners and friends we met on the first day of tryouts when we tried out for a team. If you have a lifelong friend, some of us are blessed to have a friendship that goes back decades. My encouragement to you is think back to when you didn't know one another. Can you remember the first conversation that you had when you didn't know that this would become a relationship that would define 
and bless your life. Family relationships emerge and develop over time. Recently, when I was traveling in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul in Greece, I was reminded as I walked into the ruins of Philippi that the Apostle Paul walked into that town not knowing a soul. And so it gives us pause. Just a few years later, he writes a letter to a church there. People who followed Christ. By the way, no one was a follower of Christ there when he stepped into that city. And yet this love took root. And years later, he writes to them so affectionately. Something amazing is going on here. And that same amazing heart-level relationship building happens and can happen in the church today. Imagine what it would mean as a congregation if we could say that we hold each other in our hearts. If we could truly live it out with affection and compassion toward one another. After all, someone said once that they will know we are Christians by our love. Well, Paul's prayer that he ends on in this section, his prayer for the Christians in Philippi, can be taken as his deep desire for all those who have Christ in common, including you and me. And his desire is this, to see Christ's love grow and bear fruit among us. The fruit of the gospel where even more people will come to know the love of Christ through the love of Christ that is shared with them from the heart of the Christian community. Paul's prayer is informed by his theology, by his convictions about the future. For the second time in this opening section, he speaks of the day of Christ. This refers to Jesus' future return and to the judgment that he will rightfully exert as Lord of all. And this future day is a marker of accountability in the Christian life. There will be a day when we will be with Jesus, held there by God's grace, and yet being called to account. You see, it matters how we live, and it matters that we love. Words like pure and blameless can be intimidating until we remember that through Christ we share in God's grace, and God's grace will get us there in the end. But it also enables us to have our lives count for what matters in God's eyes today. Abounding with love through Jesus fills our lives with what Paul calls the fruit of righteousness. When the harvest comes, the fruit is gathered. It's September. We are in the heart of the apple harvest season in the state of Washington. It's stunning to consider that each year more than 100 million boxes of apples are harvested. Can you believe that? It's a lot of apples. We're the number one state in the nation 
two-thirds of all apples grown in America are grown in this state. And if you live in that region, and we might have some people uh, attending worship today who live there full-time, but we have folks who spend a lot of time traveling in, especially central Washington, you know that ripe apples don't just magically appear. Each one starts small with a blossom bursting open in the cold spring air. And then bees do their part of cross-pollinating. Sun, water, soil, and the cultivating attention of growers all do their part in the process of bearing fruit. The fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ is about applying Christ's love one to another through small, thoughtful, self-giving efforts and moments, one at a time. More and more and more, in Paul's words. You see, it always starts small and grows from there. And through our loving actions and our loving thoughts, and catching ourselves before we say a negatively critical thing, or a thoughtless insult. We nurture it. Every time we extend grace and mercy one to another, we cultivate that love a little bit more. And friends, that's how we get to God's goal of being a loving community of faith. It is, in fact, our cooperation with the loving work of Jesus Christ among us. And so we started our journey in Philippians. We've discovered that it's rooted in joyful gratitude and a powerful promise of God's faithfulness that he will continue the work that he's done within us and carry it to completion. We've been reminded that we share in God's grace and because of this we're connected at the heart in a loving community. And we're encouraged by Paul's prayerful words to abound in love for one another more and more. This is the fruit that Jesus longs to produce in us and among us. So always remember that we are heart held. Heart held by Jesus so that we can hold one another in our hearts with his love all to the glory of God. Amen.